We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, I'm Ben Johnson and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. I am talking to Greg Shahadi, one of my oldest uh, friends and the chess lightning rod with many... Controversial opinions that I mostly agree with, but I'm going to try to be impartial here. So, Greg, can you uh, tell people, the few people who don't know, a little bit about yourself? Uh, oh, I play um, an international chess master. I ran the U.S. Chess League, which was a league where the first U.S. Chess League in like 20 years where people played over the Internet from city to city. I run the United States Chess School, which is a camp where the top kids in the country come to train for a week with grandmasters. Um, what else do I do? I play poker for a living for a long time. I am now starting something called the Pro Chess League on chess.com, which is going to be pretty cool. It's like the U.S. Chess League, but worldwide. So we got teams all over the world playing. I do CrossFit all the time. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wasn't aware. Yeah, well, we could spend the whole time talking about that if you want. 
Um, I have lots to say. Yes, we we may get to that later, but actually, let's um let's start by going back to you. I you know we went to high school together, um, oh, yeah. and then you were off to college and a very young, talented chess player. So, um, why don't you start by talking about how you approached chess as a kid and what led you to uh, the choices you made in terms of dropping out of college and in terms of how how vigorously to pursue chess. Well, um, so I guess when I was in high school senior, I won the national high school championship, although it was a three-way tie. Uh, and I just really liked chess, and I didn't like schoolwork, and I didn't ever like to be kind of told what to do or have to like, I don't know, like people work supposedly, where they just <laughs> sit in the office all day. <laughs> this is what I, they told me, and I never really liked school, or I like school sometimes, but I didn't like the fact that I had to be there. In the morning, um, so it was kind of like my natural existence, I guess, is not to follow the traditional path. So, like, I went to school for a year at UMBC on a chess scholarship. I did good. I liked the classes because you could set up your classes so you didn't have to wake up in the morning, which was very nice. Um, but I couldn't understand why I was there. Like, well, I mean, you know, you're trying to get a degree. But I didn't have any vision in my mind what that was going to look like after college was over. I just just didn't register to me. Uh, and I kind of just wanted to play chess and have fun all the time. Okay. So, so you, you know, were, after two years of college... Yeah, what's up? I was going to say you were ahead of the curve. There's a bit of a college backlash these days, I think, uh, mainly due to the continued um, never-ending increase in the cost. But I know that... Yeah... I didn't have the cost issue because I, I got to go pretty cheap to UMBC for chess. And then I left there to go to Drexel. My mom teach, taught there, so I got to go for free. It was more that I just didn't – I didn't feel like I was doing what I wanted to do when I felt like I had that ability to just pursue chess. So Okay, so out you went, and you came back to Philly, as I well recall. One, by the way, one key thing before that, uh, the Samford Fellowship. Right. Uh, this is probably the main reason I never went back to school. I have no idea what would have happened if I didn't win that, but it was a fellowship that they would give to a young player. They pay you like 32 grand a year to play chess. And, and you basically had to play chess. You couldn't go to school when you had it back then. And I won that. That was my goal when I dropped out of college. I won that. And so I was kind of like, you know, I have two years where I can just do whatever I want at that point, and then I'm like 23 when it's over. At that point, poker arrived, and so that's kind of like what led me to never go back to school, I think. Uh, that that squares with my recollection, and just for the record, I was very jealous of uh, this the Sanford Fellowship. I was uh, sorry, no nowhere near winning it, but um, I I endorse your having received it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> so. Do you feel like you made the most out of the Stanford Fellowship? Oh, boy. Um, in terms of just, like, being really good at chess, I would say definitely not. Okay. Do you, do you regret that? Not really. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I feel like I did what I wanted to do. Uh, and I've done a lot for chess, not as a player, but I think I've done a lot outside of the kind of player aspect of it because I pursued poker, you know, made 
money playing poker and had like a lot of free time to, to do these projects, which most people don't have. Um, okay, I agree with that. I don't know how much we want to um, get into poker. Um, for those who don't know, Greg and I both uh, both played poker for many years um, and were in at the right time. Um, amazing players, too, of course. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a lot tougher now. Yeah, it's it's a tough game now. Um, so you transitioned eventually from being a chess player to a sort of, uh, chess promoter, um, philanthropist, educator. Um, do you feel that there's anything more that needs to be said about your actual chess playing? Because I can tell you my perspective as a kid and, you know, I went to the, we went to school together, played for the same team. Um, I was pretty good and you were clearly better. Um, and, that was the case with most kids that we knew. Um, and we all were pretty impressed with your talent. Um, you had a good work ethic, too, and you loved chess, but you the main thing was you were just so tactically gifted. Um, do you feel like you... So when you, think, when you see kids today and work with them today, um, do you regret that you didn't do more or you're on board with your choices? Pretty on board with it. I mean, I think I had the potential to be, I had pretty good potential, but like not world class. Okay. So like, I mean, I can see like a, a alternate universe where I'd be like 2600 feet A maybe. I'm not guaranteeing that could have happened, but you know, it's certainly reasonable, but I would have had to make a lot of different choices that maybe wouldn't be as good for the entire chess community. Okay, and when this is something I wanted to talk about anyway, so since it came up, um, what uh, what do you think marks potential in chess? What separates people who are more talented than say 2600 uh, peak feet eight talent level, um, assuming that it's in that neighborhood, versus mm-hmm. someone that's 2750? Whew, that's always that's a tough question because I feel like. In some ways, it's hard to feel it unless you are like 2750 or 2800. Are you saying like when I see a kid and I kind of like try to predict how strong they can be, how do I tell whether they could maybe be one of the best in the world or whether they're probably no, not going to be better than 2600 feet A? Well, that's not what I meant, but you can start by answering that. <laughs> okay. Um, because I make these judgments all the time. Uh, with kids that I invite to my camps, just because it comes up naturally. I don't ever tell any of them. Uh, and, and honestly, if, if you have the potential to be 2,600 feet A, you're you know, a remarkably good chess player, because very few kids I work with are ever going to get anywhere close to that. Um, but it's mostly... So there's two different ways of looking at it. There's one way is to look at like their chess qualities, like how gifted they are at certain areas of chess, and the other is to just look at their age and their rating and just come up with a formula to, like, uh, you know, figure out the probability that they'll get to, like, one of the best in the world. Uh, And usually you have to be extremely good at a very young age, or there's, like, no hope um, to be, like, world champion. Like, you have to be, like, when you're 13, like, definitely, like, I am, or probably at least international master by 13, uh, and, like, grandmaster by 14, I'm guessing, to think about being world champion one day. 
Uh, there are exceptions through history, though, correct? Well, times have changed. There are exceptions, but I mean, in, in today's world, I don't think there's going to be too many. I mean, there might be a year off. Like, maybe you could be a GM at 15 or something. Uh, but if you're getting the Grandmaster title at 18, you're not going to be world champion. Which is kind of sad, because, uh, you know, it's pretty good to get the GM at 18. It is amazing. To- <laughs> uh, and, and it goes all the way down the line, like, 2200 USCF, you know, probably has to be achieved by a certain age or, or, you know, you're kind of like, your peak is going to be somewhere in the, maybe like you'll get into the top 100, but not top 10. In the world um, or in the US? In the world. Okay. I mean, like, you can be a top 100 player with like a little later, like things happening a little later. Uh, there's another key aspect too to like potential, which is often overlooked. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. Let's say you have like two 14-year-olds. Uh, they're both 2,200. Uh, let's say they both live in like big cities or whatever. How would you, what's the number one thing you would look at to figure out which one has the most long-term potential? Well, you know, I'm a big student of the uh, academic development literature, so I guess I would have to say grit would be the number one thing I would look for. Grit? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I mean, okay, that, so <laughs> you're looking at it from like an actual, um, quality standpoint of like the, the person's. Okay, know, so you're talking, you're talking about chess, what chess skill? No, I'm talking about like statistically. Um, statistically. Like there's like, there's something that can exist even in that situation which will make one player much more likely to become great. Okay, so repeat the, the framing of the question. Just well, they're both, sure. they're both. Let's say 14 years old, 2200, which is already very good. And, you know, they, if you're that rating, you definitely have the potential to become a grandmaster. The question is how how high can you go? Uh, but there's one thing that I've seen in a few cases, and it almost always turns out true that these players become great, even compared to the other players who have the same rating at the same age. Are we talking about how much they study? Or no, not that. And we're not. I'll tell you. I'll, okay. I'll tell you the answer. It's basically how long they've been playing. That's a shame. I think people were really looking forward to a 45-minute podcast of me trying to guess the answer. <laughs> no, I mean, there's a few examples of this, and it's always a really good indicator. Uh, like a great example of Sam Shankland. Uh huh. Like I, I don't remember the exact stats, but I think he was about 2,200 at 13 or 14, which you know, of course, is really, really good, but it's nothing like completely mind-blowing today. I mean, if you look at the top list, there's going to be like 20 people like that. Maybe not 20, maybe like 10 or something. Um, so he was like older than people. His rating wasn't higher. But you could tell he was just sick talented. And it was because he hadn't really been playing that long. He'd been playing like two years, maybe three years at the very most, whereas his peers had been playing five or six years. Um, and obviously he's proven himself to become very strong. In fact, he maybe would be even stronger if he started earlier. Yeah. Like, that might be the one reason why he's not like top 10 in the world or something. That, ma- that makes sense. So, um, didn't Magnus Carlsen start at age, was it eight or nine? I think earlier, right? But I mean, that's like normal, like six to eight or something. Really? Eight? Um, we'll have to get nine our, sounds late. We'll <laughs> have to get our fact checkers on this, but I think he started when he was eight. Um, I mean, that's possible. It's pretty reasonably early, although I think people are starting earlier now. It does seem that way. Kids, kids seem to be better than ever. Yeah, and there was another example, by the way, of this phenomenon, which is Hans Niemann. Um, there was one camp 
I don't know if you know Hans Niemann. Um, I'm not he's, Yeah, I mean, he's not like an adult yet, so he's, his potential still, like, it's unclear how strong he's going to be. But I had one spot left in one of my camps, and a bunch of kids wanted to get an invite. They all sent, like, you know, emails explaining why they should get the spot. Uh, and, you know, he was, like, some 1900 kid. There was 2000s who asked. And it was, like, hard to distinguish between them. But then I looked at his rating history, and I thought he was, like, 1980, and he'd, like, been playing for a year, or, like, less. It was, like, 10 months. I was like, what the heck? How is that even possible? Like, he went from, like, 1100 to 1980 in, like, 10 months or something crazy. So I took a shot on him and gave him the spot, and now he's, like, 24, 2400-plus, 13 years old, like, in the top three for his age, definitely. Um so you just kind of see this. People who have not been playing a lot, like get their rating high really, really fast. Seem to be, uh, it seems to be a lot of potential there. That makes sense. So since we're talking about kids and mm-hmm. uh, talent levels, why don't we transition to talking about um, the U.S. chess school that you founded? So why don't we go back Ooh. to you played poker for a while, and then I think while you were still playing poker, um, founded mm-hmm. it. Is that correct? That is correct. So what motivated you uh, to do that? It's kind of stupid that it didn't exist. <laughs> so that's kind of why. Uh, I knew kids wanted to have it because, you know, I was younger then too, so I talked to them all the time. They all thought it was a great idea, but, like, they were all disillusioned because they felt there was not very much support for scholastic chess or, like, the most talented kids in the country, and that, like, kind of pained me because I remember the same thing when I was a kid. There wasn't... There wasn't really camps like that, like free camps where the top kids in the country get to go on an invite-only basis. Um, so I was like, oh, let's fix that. Okay. And was this around the same time that you founded the Chess League? Um, uh, yeah. yeah. It was like a, a year later, maybe. Let me think. It was a few months later, actually. And when you when you start ventures like this do you suffer from inertia do you have a hard time actually getting them started or do you just do it hmm these two were easy the u.s chess league and and the uh u.s chess school were kind of easy because the u.s chess league you you know i just wrote a few people i was like hey this is my idea what do you think like i emailed like john donaldson from san francisco jen my sister from new york uh, my dad in Philadelphia, <laughs> just like a bunch of people in different cities. And they were all like, yeah, that sounds great. So it's it's really easy when you have a bunch of people supporting you and wanting to do it. And the U.S. chess school, you know, I knew these kids wanted to do it. All I had to do was just raise a few bucks. Um, I suppose th- yeah, in, this case it was, in this case it was easy um, because they were good ideas that there was a big demand for too. Yeah, I, I think, I don't know, from my perspective, the U.S. chess, uh, the chess school, that makes more sense to me because, uh, teaching is sort of in your wheelhouse and you were a good enough player where you could teach them yourselves, yourself. I didn't though. I never taught until like five, six years into the, to the program. Right. I was going to say, and also you, you had good connections to recruit, um, people, but the U.S., yeah. the U.S., the chess league, that, strikes me as more of an administrative feat than anything else, which as a friend of yours has never been your strong suit, yeah. or at least hadn't been to that point. So I found I find that even more um 
impressive that you had the ambition to follow through on that and that it's still I thank you. going and growing. Uh, you're welcome. Um, yeah, it's just ridiculous that it didn't exist, though. I mean, sometimes it's just like something's ridiculous. You just have to do it or nobody else is. So. so why don't you talk about what's happening with the the chess league now? I know you mentioned it earlier. Definitely. Big things happening. Um, huge things. Huge. Uh, we're becoming the pro chess league. Uh, we are now moving to chess.com and we're going worldwide. Uh, this, the time control is going faster. Uh, there's just so many changes. Uh, the, the level of play is getting stronger as we've raised like the, the maximum rating each team can have. I can tell you now, uh, I don't, it's not public yet, but some of the best players in the world are already signed up. It's gonna, it's gonna shock some people when they see. In fact, you know what? I'm pretty sure I can, I can reveal that, you know, Magnus Carlsen is signed for the Norway team. Who? Uh, Fabian. Uh, Magnus Carlsen. He's a player, um, he comes from Norway. Blonde hair guy. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, Fabiano Caruana has signed with the Montreal team. So, like, teams are taking this serious. They are making sure to recruit the best players. We have teams from five continents already. I'm sorry, six continents. What am I saying? No, five. Sorry. <laughs> we don't have Australia yet. Um, Keep striving. Keep striving. About 30 teams. You know, billion grandmasters are in this league. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be super, super fun. Uh, the format's going to be fun. There's going to be huge commentary every Wednesday on chess.com. Like, literally, the matches are going to go from, like, 1 in the afternoon to, like, past midnight because we're going to be playing all different time zones. Like, there's a European time zone. There's the, you know, Eastern U.S., Western U.S. And so it's going to be it's going to be great. Yeah, I'm excited for it, and I assume that you picked a slow time control with no tie breaks. Uh, <laughs> no, it's 15 minutes uh, with a two-second increment. Okay, and and uh, I can tell you the match is like four against four. It's a 15-minute like everyone plays uh, somebody from the other team in a 15-minute game, and then by the end of the match, you've played everyone in the other team. So, and then you add up the total amount of points. Okay, and. I'm- um, how did you settle on this format? Uh, you know, me and, and the chess.com staff, we just kind of like shot around some ideas, and this is the one we, we decided would be the most interesting. Uh, we definitely wanted to be relatively fast, but like not insanely fast. Um, and we felt like this would be a good length uh, for a match time. Like it'll probably take two to two and a half hours per match. Which I feel is ideal. I feel like chess really suffers from a huge problem is that the games last five to six hours, which is just crazy. Like, and you also, you, you know, you have this problem, like, let's say the Sinkfield Cup, right? Like, past time control. Have you ever watched a game and it goes to time control? And then it's like some end game and they get an extra, like, half hour or whatever and they just, you know it's gonna be a draw. Everyone watching knows it's gonna be a draw and they just, they waste another hour just trying to win. You ever see this happen? I've seen it happen. I have kids and I work, so I'm I'm with you. I unfortunately can't sit there and watch chess games. I really enjoy it, but I'm yeah. my time is limited at the moment. So I mean, I don't watch either because it's just I find it so miserable to watch live chess games. Um, you know, every now and then I do. I watch the U.S. chess. Uh, I'm sorry, the U.S. Championship coverage um, in like the last two rounds because it was it was kind of exciting and I, I really like the commentary. 
Okay, well, I'm sure there are a few listeners screaming into their headphones because I know you do get a lot of pushback about your ideas about faster time controls. So uh, what do you say to people who um, feel that the quality of the chest is compromised and that... Of course <laughs> So what do I say to the people that think the quality of chest is compromised? Yes, and that that should be the most important consideration for um, determining a time control. I mean, I don't know. I've said so many things already. Uh, people play so good. I mean, you know, you know, honestly, like I, I, I talked to Kaidenov once. He was like, you know, you should really look at uh, Eronian's rapid games and some tournament. It's like they're just as instructive as these slow games. And you know, Kaidenov's not some idiot. So you know, that stuck with me. That was like ten years ago. And you know, the Blitz showdown in St. Louis with Kasparov Nakamura. I wrote a whole blog talking about all the instructive moments from that. Uh, yeah, people blunder sometimes, but I just, I just, I just don't see why that's that's a problem. Why is it? I, I just don't understand it. That's, it's, it's very hard for me to talk about. Like, I don't understand why we need to reach as close to perfection as possible in a chess game. It just doesn't seem. It seems like a, such a waste, such a waste of entertainment and potential and possibility. Like, there's so many formats that if we made them. Like, if we legitimize them, like, what could happen to chess if, if we legitimize these formats? Could, it's almost impossible to guess, but they're always treated like some kind of sideshow. Like, any rapid blitz tournament, you know, everyone's very clear to make sure it's not, to say how unimportant it is and how, you know, well, only classical chess matters, but this is a fun event. And it's just, like, stupid. So, <laughs> so, I mean, that's why we're doing this league. I mean, if this, I think this league is going to be really, really popular, and we're using a faster time control. So yeah, I I'm, hope that this will help. I'm excited for it. I mean, I sometimes feel like it's uh, the debate about this sort of mirrors the debate that baseball purists have about sp- speeding up the game versus not speeding up the game. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's just people have different objectives. Like your objective, mm-hmm. it seems to be to popularize chess. Uh, and to make it more accessible for as many people as possible. But it seems that there's this, I, I don't know what the stats would be if you ran a poll, but based on the, the amount of pushback you get on your blog post, it seems that there's a sizable population who just doesn't think that should be the goal. Um, That's correct. Um, well, first of all, what I said in my blog is 100% true. If chess was invented today, there's no chance, 0.00 chance that this would be the normal time control because it's so stupid. It only exists uh, because of some like old things that happened a long time ago, and because of that happened, everyone wants to keep it the way it is to preserve like the history and the whatever. Like, Sounds the, like our government as well. Yeah, I mean, oh, I mean, it's the same in baseball. Like, obviously, the rules for baseball are completely idiotic, <laughs> and they should be changed. I mean, nine innings, like it, it just doesn't. It, it's just because like the the statistics and the records are so important in baseball um, that. Any even minor change would just throw them all out the window. So, like, let's say you wanted to have a seven-inning game, which I think would be plenty. Uh, you know, the games would be a reasonable length, but it would just totally ruin the history of the game, which I think is untenable for too many people. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too far afield with baseball, but... Uh, yeah, but it's, uh, it's sort of similar. and It's a little different in chess, because there's not all these, like, statistics and records. Right, um, which is helpful. Um, yeah, and the you know I, I'm on your side on this, but I just want to give a, <laughs> yeah. full, a full airing to both views. Um, 
Because I also I feel mean, like I even more. I just yeah, go on. Well, even the the quality of the game. I mean, it's hard to measure that objectively anyway. So it's more of an aesthetic thing than anything mm-hmm. else. Um, yeah, I mean, I do care to some degree. Like, I don't want it to be one minute chess. Right. Uh, I like I like a good like a good balance of where people can play like reasonably well, but also it's like super entertaining. I mean, think about this ma- like Nakamura Carlson Blitz match that was online. I mean, it was like I watched it for three hours. I don't watch anything else. I don't watch any other chess event for three hours because it's like not interesting. I can't just wait till it's over and replay the game. Um, yeah, I, I would felt- say. Go on. Oh, I felt that way about the Kasparov Blitz tournament as well oh, in St. I Louis. I watched every second. Yeah, I watched every second of that. I didn't. I was not willing to miss a single round. I canceled all my engagements. I was like, I'm just going to sit in front of my computer for four hours, or what is it, three hours or something each day. Um, and I thought that was really great because they would have like three games and a nice break, so you could like grab something to eat. There would be like three more games. Now you are a bit of a blitz specialist. It has to be said. So yeah, I mean there are other people who enjoy playing classical chess. I know that you say that mm-hmm. it's part of the reason you don't play chess very actively is just the amount of time required. So you you may have a different perspective than people. Uh, well, I probably do. I mean, I'm not saying you have to like completely kill classical chess, but even even if you keep classical chess, it's too long. Like cut a half hour. Cut, like here's the reason. Here's how you know everyone's irrational. Like if if I suggested something much more modest, like cut 30 minutes off the time control, I would get the same pushback. Like almost exactly the same. Like everyone would just act like I'm crazy. It would ruin the game. Because I've tried. The, you know, I've tried to say like this shouldn't be. Um, like a second time control where they add 30 minutes to the clock for each player. And you just get treated like you're a psychopath if you, if you suggest something like that. Uh, I just don't understand why people need 90 minutes to play a game of chess. It just seems crazy to me. Like the amount that increases the quality of play is so small and you're wasting so much of your life. Well, I think what, that, just, I think what people would say is the overall yeah. quality, the, Individual move quality doesn't diminish mm-hmm. that much, but the um, propensity for blunders probably goes up significantly. Um, although, with better time management, perhaps that wouldn't be the case. But um, from a practical point of view, I think that is the result of the faster the time control, uh, the more games are like decided by blunders. Minutes, maybe. But like, if you take a difference between 90 minutes and, uh, and two hours, like I don't. I just, I just can't see why you need two hours. Like sometimes you just have to make a decision. You know, you have to train yourself to like make a decision in five minutes instead of fifteen. Like, I, I don't know. I just think there's too chess games are way too long. Yeah, I did. I actually, I remember on one of your YouTube videos, something that stuck with me was you were presenting a Mm -hmm. tactics problem, and you you suggested that the viewer should basically only spend about three minutes on it. Um. That sounds about right. Three to like maybe five. I mean, there's different schools of thought. Uh, what are they? Well, I mean, you want it to be like in a real game. It, you know, it's it's rare that it's a good idea to spend just 15 minutes in some. Ra- I mean, every now and then there's a critical position, but you don't know when it's going to come. So, like, usually when this tactical opportunity arises, you're not going to spend 10 minutes on that move. You're going to spend like five maybe and the key is to recognize that it's there like that there's maybe something there because then you know to spend like time um and so when you get a tactics puzzle 
you know, it's telling you there's a tactic. And then if you spend 10 minutes on top of that or 15 minutes, it's just, it seems like kind of unrealistic to how a ch- real chess game works. Because if you keep spending 10, 15 minutes in chess game looking for tactics, like there's often not even going to be one. Uh, so I feel like it's important to be able to see tactics quickly. And if you can't see it in 15 minutes, like it's not that practical. But other coaches think differently that every now and then you should spend a huge amount of time on extremely difficult puzzles. Uh, just to train, like, I guess, different muscles. Like, you know, if you're running, for example, if you're trying to train how to, you know, train for a mile race, you know, often you run like three miles, four miles, five miles. Um, I don't know that it's, <laughs> I don't know that's the most relevant analogy. No, but, I, but, uh, I'm sure there's some benefit to spending huge amounts of time also on really difficult puzzles that you would never be able to solve in a real game. Okay. So getting back to the playing chess, I, mm-hmm. we mentioned that you don't play very actively in tournaments uh, in large part because of the time controls. Do you miss playing um, in tournaments? Yeah, I wish every tournament was a like game 30 and I would play a lot more for sure. It's not only the time controls. Well, it's mostly the time controls. Yeah, it's mostly. <laughs> I mean, I think even game 90 would make a big difference, even though it's pretty slow still. Um, do I miss playing? No, because it's so miserable to play. <laughs> you re- you realize so- you're a spokesman for chess. <laughs> well, I mean, like, not, you know, the, <laughs> I mean, the kids who are at my camp, they enjoy playing. So I don't like talk about how miserable chess is all the time in, in my camp. They'd have to listen to this <laughs> podcast, but apparently they enjoy it. So, um, that's nice. And, you know, our training in our camps is geared towards slow, getting better at slow chess. But I do find it really miserable. There's a lot of reasons it's miserable. But, like, number one, like, when it's your move, like, let's say you make a move and your opponent starts thinking and they think for, like, 20 minutes. And, you know, at some point, you just need to give your mind a break. Like, you can't just sit there and stare at the board for 20 minutes, you know? Uh, yes. But what do you do? You just sit around and, like, walk it, look at other people's games and it's just... It's just really, really boring. Um, and you're not allowed to like read because it's considered extremely rude, which is really annoying also. I don't know. I just, I, I just find it like not healthy also. The, the other problem is you don't really have time to eat properly in general or sleep properly. And I think that's important. So like creating, go on. Can you envision, uh, formats where you can? Eat and sleep properly? Of course. Of course. Uh, let's say, you know, I mean, I could come up with a million of them, but they're never going to happen. But like, you know, five games of, four games of game 30 in a day, kind of like the tournaments at the Marshall Chess Club on Thursday nights, where you play, you start at like seven, you end at 11, or maybe it ends at midnight. So it's like five hours of chess, four games, and that's it. And you do that every day for like five days, you get in 20 games. Okay. Uh, so it'd be like a serious tournament. And you could have more than four games a day. That's just like a modest proposal. And it could be a little slower even. Like I think six hours of play in a day is, is more than enough. Yeah, I tend to agree. Uh, as an adult, it's definitely hard to, to keep playing. I mean, you know how many people quit chess because it's so miserable? <laughs> you know, like, do you think Ilya Gurevich, for example, he hates chess? No, of course he loves chess. He just hates tournaments because they're miserable. Uh, Stuart Rachels. I could give you like, uh, 
you know, Patrick Wolf doesn't, he hasn't played in any chess tournaments in forever, but he'll play in the U.S. Chess League. He'll play in the pro, he's actually in, on the Pro Chess League. Uh, he's in one of the rosters in the Pro Chess League. Wow, that's great. So, like, doesn't that strike you as odd? These guys won't play in person in the major tournaments. And yet they play Blitz on ICC all the time. All day, just Blitz, Blitz, Blitz nonstop. Do they hate chess? No, they hate chess tournaments because chess tournaments for an adult who has something other than chess in their life are, are sometimes miserable. I mean, some people can do both, but it's just impractical for so many people. Like, why shouldn't we try, at least try to make it more practical instead of acting like these people don't deserve to be able to play? I agree, I agree with you, but you know, this is my. I could go on about this for like two hours. Yeah, I I think we should we should transition soon. But I do want to. I happen to. Sure. Have, I happen to have pulled pulled a quote from uh, <laughs> from your blog page. Uh, yeah. It was your blog post about uh, needing faster time controls. Um, yeah. and I'm sure you had some outlandish headline about how it's patently absurd or something. Okay. But uh, one guy had multiple comments, and one of them was, uh, Mr. Shah- Mr. Shahadi needs to realize that. It, that he's just not serious about chess anymore and that his views don't act accurately reflect the other players out there. I mean, this guy plays chess, poker, does CrossFit, travels, runs all sorts of leagues, etc. His main mm-hmm. issue is that he doesn't know how to prioritize his time. What he needs to realize mm-hmm. is that a lot of chess players don't really have any other hobbies. This is what we do. <laughs> for, us, for us, your suggestions are the most ridiculous and outlandish we have heard. If you don't like chess anymore, Mr. Shahadi, go play something else. Believe me, nobody will miss you. Mic, right. mic drop from from that blog poster. Um, Did it say a mic drop at the end? No, but oh, uh, but uh, <laughs> so how do you respond to this criticism that chess players don't have anything better to do? So it's perfect. Some, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like uh, the game should appeal to people who who do have lots of things to do, <laughs> but still, like, you know, find time for chess. Um, I mean, okay. they play online. They play online all the time. All these people who are like retired chess players, they're just sitting on ICC five minutes all day long. That, that's a really good point. Um, I mean, speaking of online, I, I want to transition to talking about YouTube. Um, so you put out mm-hmm. a lot of YouTube comments. Um, why? Uh, why? why? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean, why? It seems like a big investment of time. Well, I like to play chess online. And when I play, I figure, what the heck, why not record it and let people watch? So, <laughs> um, I mean, originally I was doing it to, I guess, you know, I didn't know where it would go if I would, like, try to become some huge YouTube star. But it turns out I'm a little too lazy for that. Do you think However, that's that's what's preventing you from being a YouTube star? or? Uh, uh, yeah, it there... requires work. It requires a lot of work. So what like, would I'm... you what would you have to do? I'm always interested <laughs> in the business side of chess. Um I also desire to promote chess, so I think people, mm-hmm. chess players uh, as a species, need to think more about this. So I'm curious mm-hmm. what you think you could do better um, to make your YouTube channel more popular. Well, number one, I would have to be willing to do things I don't want to do for more time than I'm willing to. So, like, I would have to make them, like, more instructional, um, edited better, um like, more content that I don't intrinsically enjoy doing. Like, I enjoy just playing and commentating my Blitz games all the time. Like, that's usually a fun experience. But if you look at somebody like 
John Bartholomew, you know, he has a huge mixture of things. He does that. Um, he puts instructional comp- content up frequently that's like really well thought out. Uh, he has like editors doing some work for him. So I just don't have the, en- I have the energy to do that for like a month, like when I started and then I just kind of didn't want to do it anymore. So you have to like really be focused for a long period of time. You have to worry about little things like production, what's it called? Production quality, which I like refuse to pay any attention to. So like, you know, if my microphone sucks, I have to get a new one that doesn't suck. Um, but I never do. <laughs> so you need so to tr- treat it like a business. Really, exactly. You have to work hard at it. Uh, like if you want to do it, be a Twitch streamer or something, you can't just like half ass it. You have to really work at it. I mean, I've been doing well on YouTube. I have like almost 6,000 followers or something, which is good. It means when I post something, people will see it, but it's not a lot to like become like some giant YouTube celebrity or anything. And how do you know that those are the things that you would need to do? It just seems kind of obvious, right? Like, if I just put... Like, a lot of people want instructional material. Like, really good, high-quality instructional material with, like, good production value and, like, some humor and some fun. Um, It just seems like that's what the other YouTube people do. Also, I'm a little more abrasive than them sometimes. It's possible. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I think, I just, you know, I feel like people should enjoy that, but it's possible that some people don't. Who knows? But, you know, I still, I'm, I'm satisfied with how many followers I have, even though John Bartholomew has a bunch more. And no, no signs of, uh, no plans of slowing, <laughs> slowing down your YouTube production? <laughs> well, I've actually not put many videos up the last two weeks. Uh, I feel really bad. Like, there's been like two videos and they both, the sound didn't work. <laughs> so, that was, that wasn't great, but I'll, I'll hopefully get back into it. Okay. Well, I know you have a lot of fans, but I'm sure that even your most diehard fans have not seen all the content that you already have there, um, I would think. I'm sure some have. Um, so getting to the YouTube videos and tying it in with the U.S. chess school, do you feel that you have a teaching philosophy when it comes to chess? Oh, boy. Teaching philosophy for like all that, that applies to all people? Well, that applies to young chess players. Who are like super talented or any young chess player? Uh, any young chess player. I'm not sure that I do. do you, <laughs> Is that a really bad answer? Do you think there's one part of the game they should emphasize over others? Um, I mean, where do you come down on the like opening? I mean, what phase the of the hier- game? Yeah, the, the hierarchy. The thank you. Is, oh, no, no. I actually meant the higher your rating is, the more openings matter. Um, the lower your rating is, the less they matter. Um, you know, basic tactic stuff is really important. Like to be able to solve some simple tactics, like under five seconds, is like really important. But most people have mastered that. Most like super talented young kids. So then, there's just like basic patterns that a kid should really know. I I think though the real like the real thing differentiates between how good kids are going to be is their own work ethic. I mean, I think coaches are, of course, very important, but no matter what you teach a kid, if they're not, like, going home and, like, obsessed with chess, like, there's only so far they can go. If that makes sense. Uh, for sure. 
So you kind of have to make it clear to them and somehow get them to believe that's true and also get them to want to be great. Now, uh, but you know, go on. Do you ever wonder if that's the best use of this, these kids, uh, talents? Chess? Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I don't, I don't really worry about it. I mean, if they enjoy it. Yeah, I, I wonder how, too. How, how do you mean? Uh, I'm just curious. I mean, it's a question that I think any chess player who has spent a lot of time, uh, playing, the thought at least crosses their mind at some point that they could have spent the time studying something else. I mean, it's a mm. fascinating and beautiful game, but it's, a very, um, um, limited in scope, at least. Uh, it's true. What else should they have studied? I mean, uh, you know, like finances or something? Uh, that That's for them to right. say. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, mean, one good thing about chess is it allows you to live a lifestyle out of the, like, nine-to-five work week thing, which is very important. So, like, yeah, you could study, like, medicine or something, but then your whole life is sucked away sitting... I mean, you know, of course, doc, being a doctor is great, of course, but you are giving up much more of your, you know, you're giving up a lot. Like I talk, I know a bunch of doctors. I mean, they suffer. Most of them suffer for a long time. Uh, and they're willing to suffer, but I mean, it's like, it's pretty brutal. Yeah. I, they give, they give up a lot, but they also, they give a lot. Yes. Yeah. Doctors are the best. Let me just make that clear. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just saying it's like, um, Nobody asks doctors, though. Like, nobody asks people, like, lawyers, like, hey, or maybe they do now. But they don't ask them, hey, do you feel like, do you feel like you should have just, like, studied chess instead your whole life, you know? And, you know, not had to work every day of your life, wake up in the morning, have, like, eight hours every one of your days controlled by outside factors. I'm very, you know, like, there's, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the nine to five, um, obsession that we have in the United States or in the world, I guess. Like, I think it's a good thing to see if you can try to navigate a way outside of that. Yeah. Okay. I agree. I don't know if that, that's really, that's sort of what you asked, but I feel like these people, these kids who are super talented, who are focusing on chess are making a very good decision. Okay. So yeah, that's the top ones, the top, top, top ones are, cause they're going to never have to really work a normal, work day in, your, in their life if they don't want to. Well, I mean, how many chess players in, a, in the world are making a good living just playing chess? Um, I'm not sure. But there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity out there. Like somebody like, let's say, uh, Jeffrey Zhang. Um, I think he has good earning potential if he just only focuses on chess. Okay, but that's... And a- you can always teach. Yeah, that's a fairly extreme example. I mean, he won, he won the world juniors. Only one person wins it out of all the okay, juniors well, in the world. Let's say Sam Sevian, a Wonder Liang, um, probably Rufeng Li. I can give a, a bunch of examples. One thing they should all really work on though is their, their personality. And, you know, cause one day commentating could be something that they could, uh, branch out into and having like a, a fun and gregarious personality could be very useful for that. But I'm sure nobody's thinking about that at all. 
Uh, but, you know, like, I'm sure Fiddler makes a, a very hefty amount of money with these commentary jobs. Because uh, he's such a nice guy. Yeah, he does a good job, so I hope so. But. Yeah, and he's, like, super nice guy, and he's, like, very friendly. So, uh, this is something that kids don't really pay attention to, but... You know, like Yasser Sirwan, for example. I mean, he's just super nice, and therefore he gets all these gigs. And there's, like, dozens of other players around his level, around his age, whatever, but he's the one who gets them. Right, but but what I'm getting at is there are dozens of other players around his mm-hmm. age and rating, and there's only one who does the commentating, or a few who do the oh, commentating. More than one. So, um, I do think it's viable. I'm a chess teacher, and I do think it's viable for um, strong chess players to – they can make a living at teaching chess, uh, but mm-hmm. that's not – that doesn't necessarily um, overlap with the skill set of being um, a very good chess player. It's true. However, if you have a high rating, they will pay you anyway, even if you're not a very good teacher. So <laughs> it doesn't really matter that much. That's a good um, point. But if you have everything, if you're like good with people and you know and good at chess, then you're really gonna get uh, good deals. But you know, I've seen lots of chess players who are just high rated who I feel like are very bad with kids, and I'm just surprised that like parents don't realize it and they just pay them lots of money. Yes, I have witnessed that as well. Oh, you have? <laughs> yes. After we're done, we'll talk about who these people are. Okay. That's it. There's nothing more to talk about. I think we pretty much have it covered. All right. Well, um, thank you. This is fun. Yeah. Well, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. How can people reach you when they want to yell at you? Um, oh, they can reach me on Twitter. Greg Shahadi on Twitter. I'm on Snapchat now, but that's not a good place to yell at me. Yeah. Yell at pictures I'm of basically Greg. I'm like Greg Shahadi everywhere, actually. Okay. Yeah. I think people can track you down yeah, uh, based on the number of comments <laughs> on your Facebook posts. <laughs> it seems that people know where to find you um, and express their views on many topics. Um, yes. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Perpetual Chess. To hear more episodes, give feedback, or suggest guests, go to perpetualchesspod.com. If you like the show, please help me out by telling your friends and giving me a high rating on iTunes. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.